There are more than 250,000 murder cold cases in the United States. That number grows by about 6,000 every year. And year over year, for some reason, I don't know why, the United States is solving fewer and fewer murders percentage-wise. Just throwing that out there for you. (laughs) In ancient Israel, a notable killing had gone unpunished. It wasn't exactly a cold case. Rumors had spread here and there, far and wide. After all, the victim was one of the greatest warriors in the nation. His name was Uriah the Hittite. He was famous, celebrated, a hero of the kingdom. But there had been no arrests, no civil suits were filed. Seemingly, there was no investigation, at least no human investigation. But then a scene worthy of the old Columbo series unfolded. The king himself was publicly accused, charged with this terrible crime. And at this point in the story, two very unexpected things happen. First, the king did not deny the charges. In fact, he not only confessed to murder, but on top of that, to adultery. In May of this year, a New Mexico man walked out of a convenience store, borrowed a phone from a stranger, sat on the curb, and dialed 911 to confess to killing his landlord way back in 2008. He told police he was tired of being overwhelmed by guilt. It was a strange call for them to receive because it's surprising to have someone confess to murder out of the blue. Even more surprising to have a king confess to murder. That's not usually something kings do. But then a second surprising thing happened in the story. The killer was not led off to be executed under the law of Moses as he deserved. Instead, he went to worship in God's house. And sometime later, he wrote the song that we just listened to, Psalm 51. The killer is David, the psalmist of Israel. For thousands of years, Psalm 51 has endured as one of David's most famous, most beloved, alongside Psalm 23 and Psalm 139. It remains important not only because of its beauty and its history, not only because it speaks to us of the overwhelming grace of God and the forgiveness of sins, but it's important because we know that this is a prayer that God accepts. That's why it's in the Psalter. Because even if you're a murderer, you can be forgiven by God, and this is the kind of prayer for repentance that the Lord receives. And it gives us a roadmap for how we can untangle ourselves from the ruin of sin and experience the tender, washing, strengthening of God's forgiveness and presence in our lives. Now, we're going to begin our study above verse 1 in what is called the superscript. It says there, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Most of you know this story. It's a familiar one if you have been uh, exposed to the Bible. When David's men went to war, when kings were supposed to go out to war, he stayed behind at home. One day, he saw Bathsheba bathing and had her brought to the palace, and he slept with her. Now, notice what the superscript says. It says, after he, David, had gone to her. And remember, it's David writing this, and he's going to... This, this psalm is all about putting things into proper spiritual perspective. And so it's just an interesting contrast. In the story, historically, he hadn't gone to Bathsheba. He had sent and had her brought, but he says, no, what really happened is that my heart went to sin. I went down to there. It was his doing. He reached out to take what wasn't his. 
And after doing it, it began a disastrous series of events because Bathsheba got pregnant. And then David tried to cover up what he had done, but the cover-up didn't work. And so ultimately, he decided to have her husband, Uriah, killed. Uriah, who was David's close friend, by the way, one of his mighty men. David, we find here, is guilty not of one, but two capital offenses in Israel. There was no sacrifice that could atone for what he did. There was no fine he could pay to make restitution. There was no jail for him to be carted off to to do his time. Death was the only option. Death was what he deserved. He had no hope other than God's merciful grace, and he knew it. And so in verse one, he begins to sing and to pray. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. No bartering, no bravado. He didn't walk in and say, God, you know me, I'm David, I'm important. He didn't do anything like that. Instead, he throws himself on the mercy of the court of heaven. And what he asked for is the legal expunging of the record of what he had done. He said, clear my record, wipe, it, wipe my slate clean as if I had never done these things. Now, this is a big ask. Even if you're David, the giant killer, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, this is a big ask. How could David come in and, and demand such a thing after all that he had done? His double guilt of adultery and murder take one away, he still deserves to be executed for his sins. And he asks, Lord, clear my slate all the way. He could ask such a big thing because he understood the character of God. He believed God was a God of grace and compassion and mercy and forgiveness toward the guilty. He knew about God's unfailing love. And he knew that God wants to forgive. He wants to cleanse. So often out in the wider world, in the culture, and maybe in our own hearts at times when we're discouraged, we think of God as wanting to squash, as wanting to strike, as wanting to lightning bolt people, right? And that's why the gods that are made in man's image are gods like that, because human beings are vengeful and aggressive and all of these sort of things. We want to take revenge on others. And so when human beings make gods in their own image, that's the kind of gods they make. And then we tend to think that the God of the Bible is, he gets to a certain point and he can't take it anymore, and then he's just got to punch a sinner, right? And, but yet David understood that God wants to cleanse, he wants to forgive, and the Bible presents God just this way, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. David continues in verse 3, he says, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Even though maybe a year had passed and it seemed like David had gotten away with what he had done, internally, we find he was crumbling. He kept playing over what he did again and again in his mind. It was before him uh, day by day as he realized what he had done. What really woke him up, though, was when the prophet Nathan came, sent by God, God's investigator to go and charge David with, this, with these crimes and to confront him. He, he went to David in the court and he said directly, listen, you're the man, you have sinned, you have treated the Lord with contempt. 
What an amazing thing to say to the king. That scene, which was so harsh and so unpleasant in the moment, well, but we know it was the very best thing that could have happened to David, right? We know the end of the story. We know the full story. And so as readers who are familiar, we understand that that moment of confrontation where Nathan went and pointed his finger and he said, you are a guilty sinner who deserves to be judged. We know that that was the very best thing that could have happened for David. He needed to be confronted with his sin. And the Bible does confront us with our sin, all of us. It says that there's no one righteous, no, not one, that the wages of sin is death, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But more directly, let me tell you, if you're not a Christian here today, or if you're a Christian who is living in sin or hiding some wicked thing that you've done, you need to understand that you are guilty and that the Holy Spirit wants to expose that sin, not to shame you, not to parade you around as an object of ridicule, but he wants to diagnose you with sin because sin is fatal. Sin is deadly. It destroys and ruins everything around it. And so the Bible and the Holy Spirit says to you today, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a Christian who's in sin, that you are the person, you are treating the Lord with contempt, you have sinned, and that sin is going to ruin your life And you need to turn from it and be embraced by the grace of God so that he can deal with your sin instead of having to judge you for your sin. That's that's the message of the Bible. That's the good news that God has grace and forgiveness and power to cleanse us from our sin. And it would help us as Christians to see sin more and more the way David did here in this psalm as a terrible, defiling thing because it is. And the more we ignore it in our own lives, the more it's going to destroy our lives, internally, uh, our circumstances, our relationships with others. In verse four, we read, against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you're right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Now, this is a shocking thing to hear. We raise our eyebrows to this. Against you alone? How about Uriah and Bathsheba? How about their friends and extended family? How about the nation at large? You sinned against a lot of people. And it's true, there were terrible, rippling consequences from David's sin. But what's he saying here? What's going on? It's true, this phrase can be translated, against you above all I have sinned, but that's not really the sense that we're getting. And that's not how the majority of translators bring us this phrase. But then remember this. I thought, this was interesting to me. A king can do what he wanted, especially in this day and age, right? What did President Nixon say? When the president does it, that means it's not illegal, right? And isn't that something that's being debated still today uh, in the White House and people who were presidents and people who are presidents? What's illegal? Is it illegal when this person does it or when that person does it? But listen, in the ancient world, kings did what they wanted. When Israel demanded a king so that they could be like the rest of the nations, Samuel, the prophet, said hey, you don't actually want a king because you're going to be like the other nations and your king is going to be like the king of other nations and kings can do what they want. They can take your sons and your daughters. They can take your horses and your cattle. He can take your fields and your vineyards and your grain. It belongs to him. He's the king. 
And we understand that kings in this era ruled with absolute authority. And so on some human level, since they said, we want a human king, well, then the king gets to do what he wants, whether you like it or not. But, you know, we look at this, and even an atheist who doesn't believe in God would look at what David did, and you said, hey, here's what a guy did. He took this other guy's wife, he slept with her, and then murdered the husband. Anyone would look at that and say, well, that's not right. Why do we say that's not right? Why do we feel it deep within ourselves, no matter where we are, who we are? Any average person would say that's wrong. Why? Well, it's because God does exist, and he has an absolute standard of morality, and he has written that morality, the law of his morality, onto our hearts, whether we believe in him or not. That's why human beings in general don't act like the animal kingdom. You know who doesn't care about who's married and who's being murdered? Lions and tigers and bears. No lion and tiger and bear murder cold cases because they all just murder each other all the time, right? If there's no God and we're just animals, then what David did isn't wrong. Because there's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as your wife or her husband. It's just, I'm just doing what I want to do because we're all just animals. But even unbelievers understand that what is happening here is wrong on a deep, terrible level. And it's because God has a standard. And that's what David is saying. When he says, against you, you alone, I've sinned. He says, you know, what I've done is I've violated God's standard. And it's important that he understands this and he's saying this because he's not going off of his own standard. He's not going off of his friend's standard. He's not going off of any human standard. It's God's standard, not ours. Because our standards, and by ours, I mean the human community, our standards of good and evil, right and wrong, seem to fluctuate over time, don't they? They fluctuate depending on what culture you're in, what era you're in. If there is no God what David did was fine. And so what is normal in the world's sight may be very evil in God's sight. And God came to David and he said, hey, listen, what you've done is evil in my sight. I don't care what these other kings are doing. I care about what you're doing. And this was wrong. Now, someone in Israel, a diehard David fan, someone who had David's t-shirt and hat and had a tattoo of David's face on his bicep, one of those people, right? Imagine that kind of a person, a a diehard David fan. They might hear what David did and say, that's not great, but I'm going to give him a pass because after all, he's the king, and after all, he's the killer of Goliath. He's the deliverer. He won all of these victories, and after all, Uriah is just a Gentile. We don't really care about Gentiles anyway, right? And we can understand how someone could overlook what David did and kind of give him somewhat of a pass on it. But David recognized, no, 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 that despite what anyone else thought or said, he had violated God's morality. And he recognized that God, the judge, was watching and evaluating, that it was evil in his sight. So if God, the judge, was watching and evaluating, why wasn't God, the judge, judging? Because David was definitely guilty by his own admission, and he definitely deserved to die. Well, it's because while God is a judge, he's also a savior. He's full of mercy, and his desire is that people would be rescued from the penalty of his sin. Now, he will judge sin, but God's whole thing is bringing human beings back into reconciliation with himself. 
We are the ones that brought sin and death and ruin into the world. And he says, okay, well, now I'm going to spend a lot of time and effort and energy doing all that I can to undo what you have done and give you a way to escape the penalty from your sin. It's going to cost me very dearly. And I'm going to work for thousands of years to accomplish this work, but I want to save you from your sin. And so not only is he the judge, he is a savior. Verse five, David says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. This is one of those verses from which we build our understanding that human life starts at conception, by the way. But David's problem wasn't just that he was a murderer. It wasn't just that he had committed this act of murder or that he had committed this act of adultery. He is looking deeper within. Yes, this was what it culminated in, but David looked inside himself and he said, the problem is not that I committed murder, it's that I'm, I've got a murdering heart. I have a murderous nature. I'm a sinner through and through. Now, in his Psalms, David loves to look into the human heart, to examine it and, and get down to the core nitty-gritty issues. And at our core, we have a sin problem. Whether you've actually murdered someone or not is not the issue. The issue is, who am I in my core? And at my core, I'm a sinner in rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis wrote, a man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. And so David is admitting his guilt. And this is a step on the road to forgiveness. He wants forgiveness, not just for this one mistake, but for everything. He knows that what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah was not some one-off freak accident that came out of nowhere. No, it flowed from who he was. It flowed from his human nature. Now, not everyone is going to become a murderer, but the truth is every single one of us are killers at heart. Jesus explained this very clearly in Matthew 5. He says, yeah, it says you shouldn't murder and you haven't. That's great. But guess what? If you've ever hated someone in your heart, you're a murderer. Hate to break it to you, but every one of us is a serial killer in our hearts. We're just held back by things like society and decency and those sorts of things. But in our hearts, the sin is the same. In our hearts is where the problem is. From our human hearts, the New Testament tells us flow evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander, all sorts of yucky stuff. David understood this and he came to the conclusion that what he needed was a new heart, a new nature. And that's exactly what God was going to provide. Verse six, surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. We learn here that God is not only a judge, he is not only a savior, he is also a teacher. He's chair of the wisdom department where we are instructed in truth and godliness and heaven's way so that we can know how to abandon sin and walk in fullness of life. I appreciate the focus on depth in this section. Uh, a lot of our time in our day-to-day -day lives, it's spent on surface level problems, right? The problems with the car, you know, the appointments we have to go to, really surface level things. But the truth is, each one of us has deeper things going on that need fixing, things that we don't even fully understand ourselves about the crevices of our hearts and, and issues that need repair and need fixing. And they're things that only God can fix. Recently at home, our kitchen sink was draining really slow and then standing water, right? We did all the stuff, pour a bunch of hot water down the drain, then pour a bunch of Drano down the drain. That didn't work. I'll pour liquid plumber down the drain and we'll have like a fight between liquid plumber and Drano. None of that really worked. So then the auger came out, right? The, the, the drain snake. 
and I got that thing going and you know, you feel it going in the pipes and kind of going around the curves of the pipes and I didn't feel it run into any big clogs. Well, so I kept going deeper. And before I knew it, all 25 feet of the snake was in the pipe and I thought, how deep is this clog? I feel like the end of my auger is like downtown at the city water treatment plant now, like what's happening? And so I just kept doing it and kept hoping that it would get better. I snaked it a couple more times and poured a whole bunch more liquid plumber down there. And now I just, it's okay. And I'm just waiting for that deep problem to present itself again, right? Because I didn't actually solve it. I think I just made it a little bit better, but deep within the recesses of my pipe, more than 25 feet is some kind of horrible, gnarly clog of grease and hair and putridity. And uh, I can't reach it. So listen, God wants to solve the deep problems of our hearts and our lives, and his grace is enough for it, and his wisdom is effective for it. Sometimes we think, well, the Bible, that's churchy stuff, and, you know, but I'm living a real life here, and, and the Bible says, God says to us, no, no the, the word of God is for life and godliness, surface level issues, deep issues, everything in between. He's a teacher of wisdom, of deep wisdom, so that you can know how to interact with this world and and deal with these things. Verse seven, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. So David earlier asked for legal cleansing. That's one thing. But here he asked for ceremonial cleansing. He didn't want to just escape the gallows as it were. He also wanted to be able to go into God's house and worship again. He wanted to be able to be received into God's presence. And for that to happen, he would need the purification of hyssop. Hyssop was an important aspect of the law of Moses. It was used in a variety of ways. It was used to paint the doorposts during the first Passover in Egypt. They said, the Lord said, take that lamb, slaughter it, take a bunch of hyssop, dip, dip it in that blood and paint your doorposts red so that the death angel will pass over you. Later, we find that hyssop was used for the ceremony to in the cleansing of lepers, something that had never been done until Jesus came on the scene. But you, you would use hyssop, dip it in blood for the cleansing of the lepers. Hyssop was also used to bring God's people into covenant with him. And so David is saying here, listen, I'm a leper who has broken covenant. I am captive to sin. I need a new Passover. I need to be made clean. There is no medicine. There is no help. There is no rescue for me other than what God provides. While Jesus Christ hung dying on the cross, some standing below dipped a branch of hyssop into sour wine, raised it up and offered it to him at his face. Of course, we know that Jesus would have been bleeding profusely from the thorns in his brow and they had plucked out his beard. And so we see this image of the hyssop mingling with the blood, once again, of an innocent sacrifice, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We sinners need the cleansing supplied by the blood of that innocent substitute who can wash us by the hyssop, as it were, whiter than snow. Is there anything whiter than snow? Have you ever been up on a mountain when it's like fresh snow and the sun hits it and your eyes just, just burst into flames, right? It's so white, it's so bright. Is there anything whiter than snow? Well, there's one thing. It's a human heart washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. This, this magnificent transaction where God takes the blackness of our heart, dips it into his own blood and makes us perfectly pure, free from any tarnish or defilement, any spot any blemish. 
That's what the Lord wants to do for each one of us. Verse eight says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. It had been nine months or a year since David's scandalous behavior. He had involved multiple people bringing Bathsheba to the palace and in his plot to kill Uriah. This was not something that he did by himself in a back alley. I mean, he involved people. Uh, These palace walls were talking. You think the servants in the palace weren't talking to each other and say, hey, what did the king call you into the room for? Um, Well, he called me into his room and he showed me a naked woman. He said, who is that? And I said, oh, uh, that's, that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And he said, go get her. And uh, wouldn't you know it, a few months later, Uriah is dead. Instead of the halls of the palace being filled with praise and worship and music and the songs that David wrote, they're filled with whispers, filled with shame and embarrassment, filled with the testimony of sinfulness. David himself was aching within. Many scholars believe that Psalm 32 is a companion to Psalm 51. And in that Psalm, he describes the pain he was in and the weakness that he felt, how he was groaning all day long. He describes it here as the crushing of his bones. And it's an interesting comparison because from the human perspective, David had flexed his kingly muscles, right? He saw a woman he wanted and he took her. No one could stop him. When his plan to cover up his adultery failed, he flexed his muscles again and had the husband killed and no one could stop him. No one could do anything about it. From the human perspective, it was a show of strength. I can do whatever I want and no one can stop me. But in reality, what was going on? In reality, this was the weakest David had ever been. With his relationship with God blockaded by sin, all of his vitality drained away. All of his strength was gone. He was crushed by this sin, crushed by the guilt. Verse nine, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So not a repair, not a remodel. David wants a new heart. He wants a new nature, one crafted with heavenly materials. His prayer is that God would bring order into the chaos of his heart. And that word heart means his mind, his will, even his intellect. When God saves us, He doesn't simply reroute us from hell to heaven, although that would be enough, and obviously that's the most significant in some sense. But from there, he begins a total transformation of who we are. He gives us a new nature. We are new creations. His intention is to give us a new mind, a new heart, new desires, new perspectives, new attitudes, new words, new priorities, new reactions. And all of those things in line with his character, not our own character, not our own intuition, not our culture, but his heart, his mind, his behavior, his attitudes, all replacing that old nature that we were born with. Verse 11, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Christians feel weird about this verse, if we're honest, right? Uh, we once talked to a, a pastor who said, oh yeah, we don't, we don't sing this. The famous Jesus movement song created me a clean heart, oh God, because it says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So we changed that. We're like, ooh, well, maybe, maybe don't change the Psalms. Like, <laughs> uh, but people feel weird about it. So is David suggesting that we can lose the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is no. Jesus was very clear on this point. John 6, 37, he said, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. But remember, we are members of a new covenant with the Lord. We live in what we call the dispensation of grace, the church age. David was living in a different dispensation, a different time. 
He lived in a time where the Spirit's anointing did seem to come and go, particularly when a believer fell into sin. David saw firsthand exactly how this happened to King Saul before him, when Saul stopped following the Lord, when Saul would refuse to repent of his sin. While the Spirit will not be taken from Christians, and we're sure of that, we are told in the New Testament that we can grieve him, we can quench him or stifle his activity, And the Apostle Paul indicated that we can become disqualified from God's service when we fail to walk in self-control, when we fail to repent of sin and instead dive into it. And so even though we're not worried about the Holy Spirit being taken from us, we do want to be like David in the sense that we are concerned about our relationship with God the Holy Spirit. He's a person, and we're to have a relationship with him. There are things that we can do attitudes and behaviors that we can engage in whereby we allow the Holy Spirit's influence to fill us up or whereby we quench his work, grieve his heart, and disqualify ourselves for his service. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Now, the term willing can also mean a free spirit. Did you know you should be a free spirit? I'm no hippie, right? (laughs) No, a spiritually free spirit is very different than what we culturally think of it. And this is one of the great surprises of God's plan for his people. God's desire is never to constrain you, never to pin you down, never to make your life smaller. His desire is to free you, to give you total liberty, ultimately bringing you to heaven with a perfectly freed will but one that has no desire to sin. How is that possible? It's the work of God in a life. He's gonna make our will like Jesus' own will. Jesus has a perfect free will, but unwilling to sin. And so David is in a sense praying to the Lord here on earth as it is in heaven. I wanna have that perfectly spiritually free will where I am still a free moral agent but choosing to do what you want me to do empowered by your grace and empowered by your perspectives and that new nature that you're installing in me. Make my heart now the way you want to make it in the end. Reprogram my desires to be totally in line with what you desire. And David also asks that the joy he once felt from salvation would begin to flow again. Do we have joy It doesn't mean our circumstances always make us happy. It doesn't mean that we don't shed tears. But joy is a supernatural power that can flow in any situation, and it's exceedingly important in the life of a Christian. Nehemiah 8 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Psalm 16 says that in God's presence is abundant joy. And so all that to say that a lack of joy in our lives is an indication that something is wrong, that something is laying siege to our relationship with the Lord, that there's some sort of blockade happening because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And if I'm in communion with the Spirit, if I'm abiding in Jesus Christ, then joy will be produced in my life. Verse 13, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. God's heart is always others-oriented, So if we have a heart that is after God's heart, like David did, we will also be others-oriented. David's desire was not just to clear himself, but then to be a part of rescuing others out of their guilt and shame and the captivity of sin. Verse 14, save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. God is righteous. We will always want to remind ourselves of this. 
He would never do the kinds of things we do, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, stealing, the killing, and all the rest. But meanwhile, we are totally unrighteous, right? But then the Lord says, hey, I'd like to make a trade. I would like to take your unrighteousness and get rid of it, and I'll give you my righteousness. Have you ever done a really bad trade? Ever, you know, been a youngster and did a really bad, like, baseball card trade or something like that, where you got the bad end of the deal? In some sense, God gets the bad end of the deal. He gives us his righteousness. And what does he say? Oh, take your filthy rags. I'm going to separate them as far as the east is from the west. I don't want to have anything to do with those things either, but let's get rid of them. And you can have my righteousness. This is what the Lord does. Verse 15, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. There was a 36-year gap between William Shatner's debut music album, The Transformed Man, and then his second album, Has Been. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone was too upset about having to wait. And again, Shatner's not anybody's favorite musical artist. Does anyone own a copy of William Shatner's, like, Transformed Man? He's a strange guy, Captain Kirk is. But this is no William Shatner situation. This is David. David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He is one of the most important, most influential songwriters of all time. He may be the most influential songwriter of all time. And for a year, he wrote no songs. There was no worship happening. He didn't have writer's block. He had sinner's block. But now, as part of this saving reconciliation that God was doing, the Lord would give him songs again. And you know what? We are all the richer for it. We get psalms like this as a result. Verse 16, you don't want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. Now, this is another eyebrow-raising verse for us because we're like, uh, aren't there like a bunch of books about the importance of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament? Aren't there like a billion different rites and rituals about the sweet-smelling aroma of these animal sacrifices? What's David saying? It's true, but David, remember, is speaking on a deeper level. He has a wider view. And he knows that God doesn't just want a religious transaction. This isn't a situation where like, oh, I broke a window, so here's some money and we'll call it good. You've seen movies, scenes like this in movies or TV where the bad guy does something, he you know, hits a car, he breaks something, and he just takes some money and throws it on the ground. And David's saying, yeah, that's not what you want. There is no sacrifice for murder. There is no sacrifice or ritual for adultery. He says, Lord, you don't want that because there's nothing that I can do to pay for what I've done. And you don't just want more animal death. You want something else. What did God want? Verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And so what God wants, he wants you on the altar. He wants you to be the living sacrifice. He's pleased when we surrender ourselves to him in faith and obedience and trust. Now, it's interesting. The words for broken and humbled speak of smashing and crushing. And of course, David mentioned crushing earlier up in verse 8. And so it seems in this song that we get to choose between crushed hearts or crushed bones. Which would you rather have? Well, they both seem bad. No, no, no. One of them is very, very good. One dictionary says this about the humbled, crushed heart. It defines it this way, to be in a crushed state or possibly actively to press on someone implying destruction. So in verse eight, we have the bones crushed under the destructive disease of sin, or here we have the option of a heart pressed into the Lord, its stoniness destroyed and crushed and then fused with the heart of God in oneness with him. So the Lord says, yeah, I, I want your heart to be crushed. That heart of stone, I want to destroy it so that I can give you 
a, a spiritual heart, a heart of flesh is another way that it's talked about uh, in a different part of the Bible. God will not despise a heart like that, a humbled heart. To drive home that truth, you should read the incredible account of Ahab in 1 Kings 21. You have to understand that Ahab was the worst king in the nation of Israel's history. We're told multiple times how bad he was. The Bible says there's no one ever who devoted himself to evil more than Ahab. Okay, this guy has it coming. And the Lord agrees, this guy has it coming. So he sends a prophet and he tells Ahab, you have it coming, judgment is coming. And then Ahab humbles his heart. He tears his clothes. He crushes himself a little bit. And then the Lord says to Elijah something that's one of those moments where we just drop our mouths open and we say to the Lord, really? This guy? He says to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not bring disaster during his lifetime because he's humbled himself before me. What? This guy is the worst. You said he's literally the worst. And and the Lord says, yeah, but I'm not going to despise his humbled heart. That's how much God will not despise a humbled heart. He says, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who will humble themselves and receive from me a measure of my grace. Verse 18, in your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. When David was walking with God, he always thought bigger than himself. He thought of the rest of God's people. He thought of the nation. He thought of the ongoing work of God. He thought of the coming generations. When he wasn't walking with God, when he was captive to sin, what do we see? We see the opposite is true. David is all self-oriented. I don't care about my friend and that this is his wife. I don't care about my soldiers. They can go fight without me. I don't care about the nation at all. I'm doing whatever I want to do, taking whatever I want to take. No one can stop me. And so we see this, this contrast between walking with the Lord or walking with sin. And we see how the fruit of repentance makes a person more like God selfless, worried about others, thinking about the plan of God unfolding in and through their lives. How would Zion prosper that we read in verse 18? We'll look at verse 19. Then you will be delighted in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so they would prosper in worship, prosper in God's presence. David specifically highlights bulls And that draws our attention to the Feast of Shelters or the Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called. Because during that feast, dozens and dozens of bulls were offered day by day. Shelters, this feast revealed how God's desire is to tabernacle, to dwell with his people. And it reminds us that our Messiah is coming to tabernacle with us in his forever kingdom. He says, then bulls will be offered and we'll be together in communion. And we'll be looking forward to the establishing of your kingdom, Lord. So God's people prosper in his presence and with his presence in them and in worship. And this happens when they acknowledge their sin, turn from it, and allow the Lord to tenderly transform them with his righteousness and his grace. We are strongest when our hearts are crushed into his and our spirits made new when we're washed by his word and walking in the newness of that life, headed toward our final glory, totally new, totally free, totally surrendered and in harmony with God, our savior, the lover of our souls. 